Hey, everyone, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson. And I'm Joe Lalo. And today we're going to be catching up on some questions you guys have submitted. But before that, we're going to discuss some of the things that have worked for us over the years for getting out of writing slumps. And we've also got a few newsy, newsy news. Is that a thing? News things to talk about that may be of interest to you before we uh, pop into that. So I guess why don't we just hop right in there? Joe, do you want to talk about this? So you have book club ads that we're going to discuss, it looks like. Yep. Um, I'll start with, I don't really have very much in the way of personal news. Uh, I have written, I'm 27,000 and change words into Big Sigma 6. Other than that, everything is the same as last week. But um, uh, if you have been, if you've ever done BookBub ads, then you will know that the two things that boil down to whether or not you're going to have a good BookBub ad are the quality of your graphic and how well you target authors. Those are basically the only two variables that you really have to solve. and uh, well, a long time ago, uh, book, uh, book Expo America was primarily like BookBub was everywhere there. They, they were on all of the, the tags and stuff. And I went to one of their panels where they basically had been unveiling uh, the, their ads. And they were talking about targeting. And I said, I, I actually asked them during the panel, I was like, if you know who our fans are and what they click on, then you also know who else our fans click on. So don't you have better... Uh, data than we do about who we should be targeting. And they said, yes, we do. And we're working on a solution for that. And apparently that solution is finally done because in a recent email, they announced that they're going to have related authors uh, in their uh, in their targeting section now. So instead of mining your also bots, which is what is typically done, what I used to do, is look at the top rated authors in my genre and also the also bots and try to put together good author targeting in that way. Now you can target an author and it will recommend other authors that are worth targeting. And uh, I haven't used it yet because I haven't started my promo blitz on uh, Free Ranch 6 yet. But when I start putting together my first round of, uh, of BookBub ads, I think that's what I'm going to be using to see. We'll see how well it stacks up against the targets I put together last year for the same series. All right, cool. Yeah, I'm not going to play with it for a while. I don't have anything new series launching, and I'm actually pretty burned out uh, still from the last series on all things ads that I, you know, for like three months while I was rapidly releasing the series, I was like, yep, got to do all this stuff, got to pay attention to all this. Now I'm like, well, okay, they sent the receipt. I guess my ads are still running. So, uh, and that's kind of what I have to do when I go to deep writing mode for a project. I'm finishing up my sci fi series right now. It's uh, 131,000 words so far. The, uh, final installment. And I did finish the rough in about two and a half weeks, which was, I'm going to talk about that in the slump section, how I got helped to get kind of motivated because I haven't been writing as much lately. Um, but before we jump into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, do some Kickstarter mullings because you've probably heard and seen uh, Brandon Sanderson's Kickstarter for um, hit over 5 million in the first few days. I haven't actually looked since uh, we made these notes. It could be higher by now. Uh, yeah, and other people have talked about what he's doing, uh, you know, kind of a 10th anniversary leather hardbound, really cool uh, edition and a new novella in his series. And um, Dean Wesley Smith has some thoughts on it, on how it could be it could change things for the publishing industry, when that, especially maybe trad publishing, seeing, wow, um, those rights were really important, you know, like, because <laughs> I guess uh, Brandon kept his rights to do a special edition hardback specifically. And, uh, you know, things it could mean. And, and I'll go ahead and link to his uh, uh, blog post in the show notes if you want to check that out. 
And they, yeah, Dean uh, with Lauren Coleman, who we had on the show back in January, I think, uh, has a free Teachables course. And I'll also link to that too. I took it just about an hour and a half. It's mostly Dean uh, talking to the camera about a Word document that Lauren put together with some best practices. So, you know, it's it interesting, especially if you're not too familiar with Kickstarter yet. Kickstarter yet. Um, also, I'll post the link to our interview with Lauren in case you missed it, because a lot of the same stuff is in there. And I think we asked him. I was actually pretty riveted because at the time I was like, eh, Kickstarter, you know, I've done one before. So there's no secret allure and mystery for me. But I've, I've been thinking about doing one since we had uh, Lauren on for that talk. And Brandon is certainly <laughs> inspiring, though most of us have not sold millions of copies of our books and don't have the fan base and huge online presence that he does. Um, it's important to remember that also that any physical products have to be paid for. So it's not like he gets to pocket all of that. Uh, Joe says it's up to 5.4 million as we're recording this. And also important to realize that he's trad published for the most part and his readers regularly pay $15 for his eBooks. So they may be... You know, as, as Indy's charging two, three, four dollars for ebook, it may be a little harder to get somebody to pay two hundred dollars for a collector's edition. Um, poss you know, possibly not. But uh, like, I, I had a, I know a lot of my readers originally came from BookBub, so I don't know about getting two hundred dollars. But um, I think it would be just kind of a precious few people. When I did do a Kickstarter in the past, it was for, um, I was funding audiobooks. It was, this was like 2012 or 2013 when I made about 5,600. 5, I actually went and checked to see what it was. And I think I had asked for 2,500. So I, I paid for two audiobooks instead of one. So that was pretty cool. But it was a lot of work. Um, <laughs> and I, I did have a couple people back then that paid, like I had a $500 level. I think they named a character and got the whole series of paperbacks signed. Uh, you know, so it worked again. Again, though, you have to pay for the any physical products you do. And keeping in mind, it's probably only going to be like 0.1% of your reader base that's going to really spend hundreds of dollars on, you know, a Kickstarter for an author. I think games and things at higher levels, you know, you can get those numbers more easily. Um, if you are thinking of doing one and you just care about making money, <laughs> which is perfectly fine, or maybe getting some new uh, people out there, just remember that the most profitable rewards are always going to be the digital content, which basically costs you nothing to deliver after the initial creation investment. And, you know, uh, like I said, I thought about doing another one. I remember how much work the last one is, so I don't have any delusions. I, I'm sure I could make more now. But um, I think as an indie author who's never sold more than tens of thousands of copies of a single title, which is not horrible, but it's not, <laughs> it's not Brandon Sanderson. Um, I would guess I could maybe make twenty-five or 30000 on a Kickstarter for an entire new book in an existing series. I've thought about doing this with my first series, My Emperor's Edge, which is actually also coming up on a 10th year anniversary for the first book. Um, and that would be also if I had extras, like the whole series bundle. Uh, I'd probably do an ebook bundle of the whole series and an audiobook bundle, all digital, uh, and then a paperback at a higher price where I would probably, knowing now what I know then, <laughs> knowing now what I didn't know then, I would have the paperback options unsigned that could just be shipped from Amazon or whatever you, you decided to do, and then do book plates that I would sign and could just stick in an envelope and mail anywhere in the world for a buck or two, you know, postage for envelopes <laughs> with just an ounce in them it is not going to be anywhere near like shipping books we've talked about before how $50 and up basically to go international and if you've got really heavy hardbacks or a whole series of paperbacks it's going to be even more uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I noticed when I was kind of looking at 
in the authors, you know, kind of sorting by all the past uh, successful publishers of fiction campaigns on Kickstarters. There weren't, I don't think, any purely indie authors uh, making over 100,000, which, you know, and th there's a lot of folks that were that were able to make 5, 10, some, you know, something like 80. Um, so it can be possible if you have a really good-sized fan base. But, uh, you know, like when I looked at um, Dean Wesley Smith's the stuff that they've done, um, they've made like 20 or 30,000 on some of theirs, but they also had like their courses in there, which were really much higher ticket items, like $500, $750. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Not at all. Like, well, that's a great place, you know, advertise your courses as well as the new release if you've got them. But um, I can't look at that as comparable because I would be working as a purely fiction author. So it would all rely on people buying my books. So I have to weigh, like, is it really worth it? Would I make significantly more than if I just released a new book on that series on Amazon? Could it possibly bring me new exposure and new fans? Um, and I don't know, because it's you have to weigh it against the work. Um, Dean mentions in that course that I'll link to, I said the free one, uh, it says in his talks, not to sneer at a few thousand or even a few hundred dollars, but Kickstarter is a lot of work, especially if you're fulfilling digital, uh, physical products. But even if you're not, it's, it's yeah, quite a work for that whole month you're preparing, month is running, and then fulfilling stuff afterwards. And my income in any given month is likely much more than I'm going to make from a Kickstarter. And doing one would mean pushing back other projects, possibly making less on Amazon while I'm doing this because I'm not publishing new books uh, there and on the other stores. So it just comes down if it's if it sounds fun to me, if it sounds fun to you. Uh, I wouldn't say like it's probably for most people going to be like some kind of cash bonanza, <laughs> though I'm sure we'll see a lot of people try uh, now that Brandon's had such exciting numbers. Um, I am leaning towards doing it for my early oldest series, as I said, because I actually think it would be fun to do a collector's edition of that first book, maybe even combining the first two into like a real big, meaty leather-bound hardback or something like that. And at the same time, I would definitely also do a new book in the series because that's what I know my fans really want. There's probably some people that would, you know, like, hey, I'll give you the big money for this. But then I, I actually asked on um, Facebook and tons of interest and just, yes, we would maybe some want the, the collector stuff, but they wanted the new book. Everybody wants maps because I never do maps. I don't know if you guys do maps for your fantasy worlds, but my just the reason I don't do them is because it usually costs like a thousand dollars to have an artist do a really cool fantasy map. Uh, you know, and this isn't a made up world, right? I can't just stick a map of Seattle in there. Um, so that's something they're doing. So I would, it would be kind of an excuse to like maybe do some of the cool bonus stuff, some extra artwork, the things I don't usually do because from the business point of view, it doesn't make a lot of sense to spend extra money on stuff that it's not like it can be like, this book has a map in it. So it's five ninety nine instead of four ninety nine. you know? So, um, those are just my rambling thoughts on Kickstarter. I just thought I'd throw it out there in case you're getting super excited about doing one now. You know, it's probably not going to make you a millionaire, <laughs> millionaire. Uh, you know, and it's, it's quite a bit of work. But um, yeah, if it sounds fun and, and you need a reason to like do it, sure, go ahead. I, I would love to see the fiction category. I think Dean says that too. They, they really want to see like more fiction Kickstarters do well on there. So that would be awesome. All right, Andrea, sorry I went on there. Hop, let's hear your news. <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, yeah, actually, and I we've been thinking about Kickstarter a lot here too. So when Lindsay brought it up, I was like, now would be a good time to give an update on our side, which is it's not really a huge update, but um, we've decided to do a card game basically for um, for one of my series for the my flagship series. Um, and so we've we're still basically in the brainstorming stage. So we're just 
we are thinking about it. We're like, you know, compiling, you know, pictures that we like, um, ideas, artist names. Um, both of us are artists, but we both would rather just hand that part off to somebody else and oversee it just because, you know, it's just so much time to create art. Um, but it's going to be really simple and, uh, where the rules and the gameplay are concerned. And so we've decided that the art really is the most important part because we want it to be, we want the art to be so good where people buy it, buy the game for the art. And then the gameplay comes second just for this first game. And then future games, you know, we'll make it so that it's more complicated and where the gameplay itself is the most important part. But I don't know how much you guys play fantasy type games. The artwork in a lot of these games is phenomenal, you know? And so we want to make sure that what we release is in, in par with that in par. I think that's, that's a word, right? On par. On par. <laughs> Yes. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, so that's, that's what we're working on where it comes to uh, Kickstarter. And I mean, I was hoping to do one this year, but we, I mean, it's better to have your ducks in a row before you pull the trigger. And so for anyone who's thinking about doing a Kickstarter, um, just, I don't know, like see what other, like what Lindsay did, you know, go check it, check out what other authors have been doing. Um, there's all sorts of different things you can do Kickstarters for, you know, audiobooks, like she was saying, artwork, um, print books, um, you know, typesetting, things like that, just, and, and consider starting low for your first one and then make it be something that, um, I mean, you've written out the pros and cons and, and you kind of just explore which way it will take you because there's nothing worse than pulling the trigger on something before you're ready for it. And then having things fall apart and Kickstarter is a very visible way to fail. And it's not like pushing back a deadline where, you know, that's kind of behind the scenes with a Kickstarter, you're going to be making it public. You're going to be really big about it. So um, anyway, so on the MailJet side, I haven't heard back from them regarding the problem with the automation sequence where, you know, when I have people get transferred from Facebook using Zapier to MailJet, it wasn't triggering the automation sequence. Um, I'm guessing their company fell apart with, uh, with coronavirus. Um, but, and I honestly, I don't know because I, I signed over after all that started. So maybe they were already falling apart, but, um, either way, everything else is still functional. And that's still my only complaint about their, about the company, which I honestly, I mean, automation sequences is a big part of my business, but I do have a workaround, which, uh, anyway, it's just not worth it to me to try to find yet another newsletter provider when I can just have Zapier for 25 bucks a month do, you know, the work for me. Um, let's see. Anyway, so I am still um, happy overall with how things are going. Um, I do wish I could cut, cut ties completely with MailChimp, but that is not to be in the cards for me just yet. And it's not worth it for me to find a different provider to do that part of it when I've already got everything set up at MailChimp <clears throat> and I only had to um, tweak a few things in my automation sequence. Um, and then just as a quick note, um, we, I don't know, this podcast, we just talking, we've been talking so much about writing to market and keeping up on, you know, what sells, what doesn't sell. And one of the questions today is on, um, how do you know when your series is doing well, things like that. And, um, um, it just kind of hits home to what Nolan and I've been discussing for the past month or so. Um, and that is regarding where we want to put our attention when it comes to writing, um, urban fantasy, is not doing well for us, for me anymore, because I don't write as fast as I should, should be in that genre to do well. Um, and so I've done urban fantasy for years, but, and I release three, four books a, mo a month, three to four books a month, guys, <laughs> um, three to four books a year. And it's, it doesn't cut it anymore. And so I'm, 
I love fantasy. I don't think I'll ever be able to veer away from it completely unless I go straight to romance and then drop fantasy completely, which I don't think I could do because I love romance, but fantasy is where my heart is. Um, and so we're like, we're toying around with, um, you know, epic fantasy and just different areas of fantasy that is not that urban fantasy genre. And um, our biggest thing with this is if we're going to be switching from urban fantasy to a different subgenre of fantasy, we want to make sure we are doing it right because it's expensive. Um, and Lindsay, you probably know, I mean, you probably recognize this, I don't know, um, but switching to contemporary fantasy when you've been doing epic fantasy and science fiction, there is that a switching cost where you have to like arrange your brain to go in a different way because it's a different writing style and um, a different feel than it is writing epic fantasy. And I don't want to switch and, and put the work and the effort into it and then have, and then write something that's not going to work. And so, I mean, this, these are just things that are on my mind right now. I thought int- listeners might be interested. Maybe something will, you know, go drive home to them for them. And I don't know, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Um, if you feel um, like it, go ahead and post in the Facebook group and tag me because I don't see things unless I get tagged. <laughs> and then I sometimes don't see them for a couple of days, but I want to hear everybody's thoughts on that. Lindsay and Joe's too, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say I actually enjoyed quite a bit the Switch to Urban Fantasy, which was for me writing first person past tense as opposed to third person past tense, which was my norm. And they're also kind of quick books, uh, especially this spring was pretty distracted overall. Imagine why, I don't know. Um, so it was nice that I had like these 80,000-ish word books that I could write quickly because I wasn't really doing as many words per day uh, for a couple months there, as I know I'm capable of. And it, I was just like, it's okay. The world's weird right now. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm not going to beat myself up over it. So uh, I liked ha- doing the shorter books. I think the big challenge, of course, as we've talked about is genre hopping, basically, even though like I may still be writing everything's under sci-fi and fantasy, they are different readerships for the different subgenres of that. And especially going from space opera to urban fantasy was that that's a bit of a stretch. That's probably not the same reader uh, with some exceptions. Uh, I am fortunate that I have folks that jump over and try anything I write, which I really appreciate those people. But um, yeah, I, it's definitely it's definitely a commitment to jump into something new, and it's almost like you you have to plan like you're starting from scratch. I, I try not to assume that anybody's going to follow me over. I, I know some will, but that's a thing. And I'm thinking about what I'm going to do again next year, and I'm actually thinking. I was singing sci-fi for a while. Now I'm kind of like, mm, maybe epic fantasy because I haven't done that for a while, but it's treated me well in the past. And I, I actually was thinking about how I always end up writing long books later in the series as I get bringing more POV characters. And the, you know, the one I'm working on now is like probably going to be like 140 by the time I finish the, uh, uh, you know, compare that to the 80,000 word uh, urban fantasies. And I've done as high as like two, I think I have one that's 210, that's one book and then a books part one and two that would have been like 230 or 240 if I hadn't split them in half. So I'm certainly capable of those longer books. And I was like, why don't I just start out a series with a longer book? And that would make it, then I don't have to do like with Audible, you kind of worry about if it's it's too short, people aren't going to spend a credit on it. I'm going to have to put this in a box set. So I'm thinking now, I'm like, well, let's go Epic Fantasy. Let's try to start with a longer book. And then it'll just be 15 hours for the audio book from the start of the series rather than starting with 80,000 and then getting longer later. And, and the fans seem to all enjoy the longer book. So it's not like anybody's going, oh, those really drag. So I'm thinking about that. And then I just made, you know, not 
try to write as many books if I'm going to shoot for like 150,000 words for each installment. And we'll see how that comes out. You know, does that mean I make less next year because I'm not publishing as often or potentially will I be making more with like Kindle Unlimited, assuming things don't change in the meantime. And I could also possibly charge like a dollar more for a book that long. So I'm thinking like you, Andrea, kind of like, oh, what's, what's next? Um, I did want to say before I mo we move on completely, if you are thinking of doing a Kickstarter, do not do it. Um, do not make it about an audiobook for an existing series because that's what I did with my series. And it worked out for me because I had enough fans that cared, <laughs> fortunately, or wanted the paperbacks. But that's probably the reason you would need the money because audiobooks are a lot more expensive, you know, if you're paying for it upfront per finished hour for a narrator who maybe charges three or four hundred per finished hour, which is usually how it works. The, the person you like is the most expensive. So that can be why you're doing it and put that in the Kickstarter. But I would offer, I'm writing a new book or like Brandon Sanderson's doing a new novella. So, you know, he, like he has all the people getting the limited edition $200 things, but then he also has like 1200 or 2,500 people getting like basically the novella and the ebook stuff because everybody, all your fans are going to want a new installment. So I would make it about both. I made it just about the audiobooks and I think I would have made more and had more excitement overall if it had been like offering a new book. So, all right, let's move on to our topic now that we've done news for 25 minutes. <laughs> Main topic for those who have forgotten in the last 25 minutes is things you can do when you're in a writing slump to get out of the writing slump. And I'll just jump in with my first thing. Uh, for me, Taking the time out from everything to read, and I don't just mean reading like at lunch, you know, but I mean actually like not writing, not working on admin stuff, you know, basically a vacation, whether even if it's just you're at home. And in this case, I would generally want to be reading somebody else's books to completely like clear my mind. But in this case, I was about to start the eighth book in my sci-fi series that I hadn't done a new installment in for a while. So I basically decided I'm just going to go reread the series. Uh, so I can remember, this is the final book. I wanted to remember everything and be able to really hopefully wrap it up in a good way. And in the process of rereading my books, I actually was like, hey, these characters are fun. I enjoy these stories, you know? And it kind of, I think it was a combination of taking the time off of just work stuff and just reading and being okay. Like this is totally my day. I'm just laying in bed with the dog and reading today. It's awesome. Uh, that's, you know, it was a vacation. And I also find that with also with reading other people's stuff, I often, it's kind of good if you're reading somebody that's not super riveting. Like, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I grab stuff because it has a lot of, it's won awards or it just has 2000 reviews and everybody's read it. And it's not always the best book for me. And my mind starts wandering while I'm reading and it often starts thinking about ideas for my own stories. So, uh, you know, and I don't know if that works for everybody, but um, that is definitely something that works for me. Just if you can, if you can take even a weekend, you know, where you're not working on your own stuff, or not working at work and just be like, okay, I'm reading this weekend in, in as much as your family will <laughs> let you have the time to do that. All right. Who's next? Joe. Uh, I just want to add on to this one. Um, first off, that's definitely effective, especially with when it comes to rereading my own stuff. I always have a terrible opinion of what I've just written, but if I've written it, a year ago, I'll be reading it like, oh, wow, this guy knows how to write. Like, it almost makes me feel better. I must still know what I'm doing because I knew what I was doing a year ago and I hopefully didn't get dumber. But uh, I also, even if you're feeling even more passive or if you just can't feel, you feel like you can't commit to a, uh, 
to a, a, a book, which occasionally happens. Sometimes when you spend a lot of time making words, it's hard to consume them. Uh, movies and, and stuff like that. Movies and television is, is, uh, can be just as inspirational, especially documentaries. If you're like, if you write, they just watch a documentary about the actual real world, uh, and start filling your head full of stuff, uh, that you can then sort of fictionalize for your own, your own purposes. So many of the things that showed up in my sci-fi were just cool little articles that I read or cool little moments from larger uh, uh, documentaries that I watched. So I would definitely recommend that. Uh, Andrew, you want to say anything before I move on to the next topic here? Um, I actually really agreed with both of you on that one, especially Joe. I mean, I didn't know this when I before we started this podcast, but he and I both like the bad movie stuff, and that really, really does help. <laughs> it definitely does. You start thinking about like, how would I have done this better? It's a, uh, it's, it's very entertaining. But uh, all right, so another thing that I like to do when I get into a uh, a slump is uh, listen to music that's like mood music. Uh, when I'm really struggling, is like not just with scenes, but with overall motivation, I'll sometimes just take an afternoon to put together a playlist of music that suits the intended tone. Uh, it can be with lyrics if you're just brainstorming and trying to go for, for inspiration, or I would recommend without lyrics if you're going to be listening to it while you're writing. But uh, I can't tell you how many full books have been written because I want to justify a scene that I thought of during a, a, a song I really liked. Or how many, like, the, the climax of so many of my books, it may as well just be a music video because that's how my brain works. So uh, I find music to be a tremendously inspirational tool for full, like, novel inspiration and just getting out of the doldrums of the climax. Because if you're like me, and I know Lindsay said this as well, the climax can really start to wear on you because it's a prolonged action scene, which tends to take a lot out of you blocking-wise in your head. I often say I'm going to just write some cozy mysteries where the climax is like two pages. The, the cop gets the gun away from the killer and they're done. Instead, I'm doing these six POV. You got to get it from everybody's you know viewpoint is doing something. Um, I, I, do, I do occasionally watch documentaries every now and then. I, I find stuff, but I was going to add on to that. I really like some podcasts. I recently found a guy on YouTube. I got the YouTube premium finally. So you can just stick your phone in your pocket. And like the, before the screen went off, the video stopped playing. You're like, <laughs> so that's no longer a thing. But there's a channel called The Skeptic. And the I've, Michael Shermer, I think is the name of the guy. But anyway, he always interviews um, people who have published books on like science or history, uh, you know, and they're like these kind of like giant books. <laughs> I was just listening to one on like the fall of Rome and, and some new ideas on it. And like you look at the book and it's like, uh, that'd be a 30 hour audio book if you listen to that. And I'm probably not going to invest that much time in, but the interviews have been really great. They're usually like an hour or two hours long and you kind of get, the gist of the guy's argument. And I, I found them super inspiring for um, maybe not getting out of a slump, but coming up for new idea, coming up with new ideas, especially a lot of fantasy and sci-fi people. We uh, get inspired by history, things that have actually happened or things that are going on now. Um, you know, it's hard not to kind of put a message in your stories. Uh, another thing that um, kind of inspires me when I'm less, uh, I don't know, down or just, uh, I don't know what you say, just 
maybe not as motivated as I would like to be. I mean, I'm 10 years into this, guys. So are Joe and Andrea. It's like not all of that exciting all the time anymore. It's past the point where it's just always a steady upward trajectory. Like, I feel like it's easy to stay motivated in the beginning when you're like, ooh, I'm making more money and selling more books every month. If you've had that experience, <laughs> not necessarily everybody has that experience, but I, I hate to bring it to you. It's probably not going to always continue on an upward trajectory. Um, but I like to, you know, just listen to podcasts like ours, other people's self publishing podcasts. Um, you know, and when I was doing workshops, that was actually the thing that motivated me to finally finish a novel was seeing other people posting their books regularly and even getting, you know, at the time it was everybody was trying to get traditional deals in the mid 2000s, whatever it was, the OOs, <laughs> you know, but um, it was just like seeing other people succeed and thinking, you know, I think my stories are as good as theirs. And so if they can do it, I can do it. And I still find it motivating to, you know, listen to somebody who's doing something um, new and innovative and having success at it. That kind of inspires me to go work on my stuff. And I will say this is probably a personal thing. Some people will get irritated at other people's successes or disappointed that things aren't working as well for them. So you have to figure out if this motivates you or not. I always feel like since I write so much, the next series is always a chance to do the things I've screwed up on in the past and, and try. So, uh, you know, and maybe there's a mind shift thing here. If, if you don't find that stuff uh, inspiring, I mean, it's okay. You don't have to, but if you can, you know, I think there's sort of a mindset shift in general. If you can be inspired or happy for other people's success instead of like, maybe a little bitter or disappointed. Cause I think that there, there's like a word, like, I feel like there's a German word <laughs> where you feel pleasure at the failing of others. I want to say schadenfreude, <laughs> something like that. There you go. So it's really common. That's like super common. But I feel like when you meet like really successful people, they've figured out a way to overcome that and just get inspired and sort of get energy from other people's success. So I don't know what the magic is, but um, I, I do find it inspiring, or at least it makes me want to work on my own stuff more when I hear about other people doing good things in, in our industry next <laughs> um, I will say that uh, I I can fall on either side of the motivation by other success situation I never begrudge other people their success I'm like I'm never bitter when I, when someone else is successful but occasionally I'll see someone succeed at something that I want to do and be like yes there's an avenue forward and I'll be like it, it might actually be worth doing uh, if I've been sort of poo-pooing the idea but occasionally I'll see somebody doing what I'm doing and being more successful than me and I'll be like well that must mean there's something wrong with me. <laughs> like it, it, it could really go either way with me. So I sort of have to be careful when I, when I wade into those waters. That's maybe why I don't like the right to market stuff because I know that doesn't work very well for me and I would not do as well as other people do. And I'd be like, well, I'm a better writer than that person is. How come they're selling the millions of vampire romance books? And I wrote a vampire romance and it's not selling. Cause I know that would happen if you write, weirder stuff that's not like anybody else's then well maybe it'll work i, I suppose you know maybe it won't uh andrea did you want to chime in too yeah um so the the kind of the path that i've been on recently is um like i've been successful and i see when other authors are doing what i used to do being successful doing what i used to do and now i've got um kids on the play and not the same amount of time for writing. It's, it's very discouraging for me. It's that comparisonitis. Um, and so I don't know, like I, I can, I see both sides of it. Like sometimes like what Joe was saying, if it's a path I want to follow, it is super, super encouraging and inspiring to see when other people are being successful. But if, like he said, like if it's something 
um, I'm currently doing or something I've done in the past that I know I can't bite off right now, then it's, it's also, um, discouraging. So, um, like Lindsay was saying, you kind of have to just see what, where you are and what you need to do and figure out what's going to work for you. And don't do things that you know are going to hurt you. Like don't check 20 books to 50 K 5,000 times for the success stories. If you know, they're going to make you, they're going to distract you from having your own success, even if they are uplifting or if they're going to make you be discouraged. And maybe don't check your own sales stats that often either. If you're trying to stay excited about the new project you're working on, that's why I was saying at the beginning, I'm, I'm not paying attention to ads right now. Um, it's, it can be discouraging if you're like, cause it, it always falls off after, you know, when you haven't published something for a while, almost always, unless you're <laughs> the lucky few that magically sticks. Um, so maybe that's the time like, I just don't, don't pay attention to ads. Don't pay attention to what you're making while you're, especially while you're immersed in a new project and you really just want to have that excitement for your new project. That may be the time to do the documentaries or the podcasts that kind of inspire you and give you ideas. And just, it's okay not to always be thinking about Amazon ads. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I would be insane if I uh, put that much time effort into it as you know, that's why I only really do it around the launch of a new series uh, for a while. I'll pay a lot of attention and, and be tinkering with things and trying to get them to work better. But right now I'm just like, Oh, the story is the most important thing. And I want to be excited about that. Uh, next thing on my list. And, and this is, I'm not just sure it's necessarily getting over a slump, but it's when I'm stuck with a scene or I'm kind of like working things out and, or the scene I'm working on is not as engaging to me as I want to be. Uh, I, I really like going for a walk or a drive or a jog, even though I'm not like a super, I love running you guys. I get the runner's high. It's so great. I've never had the runner's high guys. Um, but there's something about engaging your body in something that's sort of boring and repetitive that doesn't, your mind needs something to do. And, and it's, especially if you're running, your mind totally needs to be someplace else. Um, so I found for me anyway, that that's a really good, I, good place to work out problems. And I uh, generally, if I just tell myself, I'm going to think about this scene and start kind of maybe working on dialogue in my head. I often find that doing it with that forward momentum or the exercise, um, it just really helps me work through story problems effectively. And uh, I don't know, it's just a little bit not needing the brain for other things. And maybe also you kind of get, especially with exercise, you get that natural dopamine hit from that, um, you know, and I'll play music too. And it's just like, especially, I don't know, you guys, I love rap music for running. It just really gets me pumped up. So uh, other people, you know, don't want music with words necessarily if uh, you're trying to think about story stuff. But I, I find that the, it just kind of tones it out and I'm just hearing the beat, but I don't know. What about you guys? Where do you go to like kind of work out when the scene or something is troubling you? Uh, I'm definitely, I definitely walk. I, I actually, uh, I used to try to, I, I found that I, uh, the earlier in the morning I write, the more productive I am. But I also found, uh, if I don't take a walk halfway through the day, um, my productivity drops off enormously. So what I'll usually try to do is get about a third of my writing done and then go take a walk and just let the first thousand words or so percolate in my head. And when I come back, the next thousand come out like that because uh, as you say, it's sort of like a background process where you just sort of need something besides staring at a suburban street in my case. Uh, yeah, it's super effective. I definitely take long walks for that purpose. And something that I usually tell my clients is movement in one area of life regularly relates to movement or, you know, 
transfers to movement in other areas. And so sometimes I'd be like, chew on some gum because even for some people, just that little bit of movement helps wake their brains up. And then other times I'm like, go running, go hiking, go walking. Like for me, um, I, I will dictate, I will pace while I'm dictating. And that helps that movement come or helps that um, brainstorming come. It just kind of dislodges things that are broken in my brain enough for the story to come. Um, Another thing, hiking. um, I don't get a runner's high either. I think I get a runner's high by not running. (laughs) I'm like, yay, I'm not running. It makes me happy. But hiking, hiking is something that um, I enjoy because I, I, my bad knees running is really painful anyway, but like, like going up. So when Nolan and I will go hiking the whole way up, we'll just be, you know, just focusing on the hike. But then on the way down, we almost always brainstorm because on the way down, you know, you've got the endorphins from being outside and from being, you know, the, the blood pumping, getting oxygen to the brain. And that's been very helpful for me. And if you don't live anywhere where there are mountains, try the stairs. And I'm serious. Like that's something I've had to do in the past when I can't get to the mountains, I'll just run up and down the stairs until I get that same, um, that same blood flow. Um, but yeah. And like I've showed before, I've got the hand things right here that help me, they help me focus on things really well. And so it's kind of, it's that movement thing. So if you're moving in some way, then it usually helps movement in other areas. And am I up next? I think you are. If you want to <laughs> just go right into the next one. Okay. Um, okay. So um, something I've discovered with myself, if I, sometimes if I have a big project or, or something on the back burner or something that needs to be done that will increase my royalties in an evergreen way, like a Facebook ad or an auto sequence or something like that, it makes it so I can't focus on writing. Um, because I'm like, you know, if I had that, you know, that Facebook ad generating leads, um, then I, you know, I, I wouldn't have to worry about that aspect of the business. I could actually be focusing on writing. And so, um, some people might be like me where if you're struggling with writing in, um, any way, you might as well be productive in other areas. And so I'm, I'm so much a project oriented person. Like I will put everything on hold and focus on one thing for like three days straight, 18 hours a day until it's finished. And then I can go back to writing. I can go back to other things. And it's usually enough of a, of a palate cleanser for me to have my stories fresh on my brain. So what I'll usually do is, um, for the times when I'm going to be in between a project. So if I've submitted a book to my editor, I'm and I'm not ready to start the next one. Um, I usually keep a list of projects that I want to be focusing on. Um, and, um, and then also when my brain's just not wanting to be productive, I can, I can just be like, you know what? I think I need to make a book cover, you know, cause you know, art is creative to me. And sometimes creation in one area will, um, bump my brain enough for me to be able to create again in writing. Um, but the things that fall into this category include, um, creating new Facebook ads, tweaking automation sequences or creating them, um, updating my books, typesetting print books, uh, creating book covers, working on courses, putting together promotions, answering email, which is not something I do every day anymore. Um, running giveaways, holding big promotional events, etc. So if I'm like really, really stuck on a plot and I'm like, if I don't release a book, my royalties drop, but I can't write because of X and XX going on in my life right now, then I will turn my attention to putting together something that will actually bring me money. So like a big promotion or something like that. I will say um, in the different strokes for different folks vein that this actually does not work for me. Um, I hate admin stuff, so I do do it between projects because uh, that's when I'm ready to work for. But I find that I really need to let myself be bored 
in order to really start getting the juices flowing again. If I'm working on something else, it's sort of like, well, I'm just working on this and my mind's busy concentrating on that. And I'm not at all thinking about my story. I don't know about you guys, but I have absolutely never had a brainstorming awesome thought while fiddling on my phone with Facebook or, you know, uh, Andrea's a lot more um, useful thing she's doing, obviously. But I, I think that there's something about for me, I have to let myself be bored. And that's when I start wanting to work on this thing that maybe before wasn't that interesting. But now that I'm walking up a mountain for two hours, like, you know, like Andrea mentioned for hiking, which is honestly, hiking's pretty boring if you think about it. <laughs> and so is running other than the torture aspect that you're thinking about. Um, so I think there's an element of that driving also pretty boring, you know, and that's, I think you have to let yourself be bored once in a while and that can help. But that may just be me not saying don't do the things and you're doing the things that keep the business rolling. So we do have to do those things as writers too. Um, I did have another thought. I didn't have this done in my notes, but you may want to experiment if you're struggling with the time of day that you write. I feel like a lot of us, it's kind of the thing you finally carve out 20 minutes of time for at the end of the day. And even if you're a night owl, you may find that you're just exhausted by everything else. You're drained by the rest of the day. Um, I, I know I've found when I'm in uh, Rachel Aaron's book, 20, uh, 2K to 10K, that's one of the things she mentioned is like writing at different times a day and keeping track of how many words and how productive you are at the different times a day in as much as you can do that with your schedule. But I know I've found that I'm actually super productive first thing in the morning. And sometimes when I'm trying to have uh, like a 10,000 word day, I will just get my coffee, go back to the bed with my laptop and write the first 2,000 words before I take the dogs out for a walk or have breakfast or anything. And it's like, wow, it actually happens really quickly. Even though I don't consider myself a morning person. I always would have thought I'd be more productive at night, but apparently not. So it may be something to test if, you know, if you're kind of struggling with the time you have right now, is there possibly another time you could try and, and see if that works better for you? Do you guys have any final thoughts on slumps before we answer some listener questions? I think we can move on. I give you permission. <laughs> okay. Um, I think Joe's going to read the first one. Yep. Uh, okay. So our first question is from Melania. Uh, what courses, books, or resources helped you learn how to advertise on the main platforms, i.e. Facebook, AMS, and BookBub? And in my case, um, help my Facebook ad suck by Madeline Jill Cooper is my Facebook compendium. Uh, Newsletter Ninja, I realize we didn't talk about newsletters, but Newsletter Ninja is in my recent history of having just been reading it to update some of my stuff. That's by Tammy L. Lebrecht. Um, and basically everything by David Gogren. I have found that David Gogren's uh, specific type of advice and the way that he presents it gets into my head better than most things. So I've read his uh, BookBub ads book and several of his others. So I would recommend really anything by him. Um, and what I did was, um, so before I bought Mark Dawson's course, I Googled Mark Dawson and podcast. <laughs> and I listened to every single show he'd been on. And this was before I could afford his, um, his course. Um, it was a really, really big help, but actually buying the course was a huge part of learning how to do Facebook ads. Um, but like I said, I couldn't afford it at first. And so it, his course opened and closed twice. So basically a whole year before I was able to save enough pennies to buy it. Um, but the course, what it did for me was it got 
down the basics of, of creating ads and a bunch of strategic things. But when it came to applying to my target audience, I didn't learn very much um, from that course. And I think, I mean, obviously you're not, he's not going to teach how to apply to every single genre. And so I learned the nuts and bolts of creating Facebook ads through that course and then Amazon's ads later. But then I had to add, I ended up having to watch what other authors were doing. And so copying their ads and tactics, uh, and then testing out what they were doing on my audience and seeing what worked best for my audience. Um, and that's still how I do it. I still monitor what other people are doing and I still, you know, test things out regularly following what I see that other authors doing. Um, and then as I've mentioned in the past, the image has been the most important part of an ad for me and, and stock images like those that, I mean, Facebook gives you the opportunity to use stock images from Shutterstock, but they've only worked a couple of times. Uh, most of the time I have to put together a composite based on my book covers to get them to work. But, um, let's see. Yeah. So that's basically what helped me with Facebook ads and AMS. Um, again, that, that's a, a Nolan question. I should have actually invited him to answer for that one, but BookBub, uh, we haven't cracked BookBub just yet because, you know, it takes, it takes money and time to crack any of these. And that's another comment you're going to want to do. You're going to want to recognize that, um, it's not going to just be like a $25 or even a $5 day for a month thing. This is going to take time to work out the nuts and bolts for your specific genre. So um, I think Joe and Andrea's resources are both great resources. I've, I have to admit, and this is not a strength <laughs> for me. A lot of it's just trial and error. I'm very much a kinetic person, a kinetic learner, and I kind of have to do things for myself and see what works and what doesn't work. I sign up for courses. I buy books on this stuff, and I usually don't finish them. And it's, it's not that they're bad. It's just that... Um, I don't know. I feel I, I get an idea. I got to try stuff. I have to tinker and learn from my own mistakes. And um, I frequently find that someone else is like, "This is awesome. This totally works." Ends up being kind of a stinker for me when I try it on my books. Whereas things that people poo-poo, I found can really work well with me. Like um, just as an example with Amazon ads, um, I had really great luck with my epic fantasy. Uh, high fantasy. I call it epic fantasy because that's the Amazon category. Um, my box set, you know, it worked really well just targeting uh, the categories. Whereas everybody's like, you got to do keywords, you know, do the keywords. <laughs> I'm like, I tried all the keywords. And in that particular book, um, categories did great for me. Uh, lower CT, you know, lower, more purchases, less cost, basically. Um, and so, I don't know. I, it's, it's definitely better if you can just learn from other people and uh, if everything works for them. But I think to some extent I have learned that, and I do try to pick things up when I pick up somebody's book or we have somebody as a guest on a podcast. Um, but I've kind of learned with all the advertising that a lot of it comes down to the book's overall appeal. Uh, as much as that as my ability to like pick keywords and put together good ads. And, and so some books will do well with minimum effort and honestly, minimum expertise needed uh, as an advertiser. And other books are just like pushing a boulder up a mountain. And, you know, it comes closer to like, it's usually more mass appeal, you know, as this is appealing to uh, a wider audience or even among the, you know, your small audience. It's just how much appeal is there? And, and there's not that you can't rewrite blurbs and do change covers and things because you absolutely can. But you will probably find once you have a lot of books out, a lot of series out, that some of them are just always going to make more sense to advertise because they convert well. 
the readers love the series and stick with it and read through the end. And other ones you have like, they may be a fan favorite. And that's often my experience is that the people that love them really love them, but they're just never going to have that mass market appeal and really take off. And those are harder to advertise. Uh, even if you're picking like comp authors and things, it's like the blurb, it still has to sound, it has to like resonate with people and be something what they want to read. All right, next question. Richards asks, Richard asks, uh, plurals are hard, guys. What? That wasn't even a plural. Never mind. Are we an hour into the show? Is it? Is it? Is there a reason my brain is going on hiatus? I don't know. His question is, what has been the single biggest obstacle to your success as an indie author and how did you overcome it? Uh, in, my, in my case, the biggest obstacle to my success was finishing my first book. Uh, it turns out, if you let me, I will just keep writing a book with a never actually ending. Like that's just, that's how I draw entertainment from the writing process is continuing to write. Uh, so the biggest thing that I had to get over in order to have any success as, as an uh, indie author was to actually con conclude a book. Uh, and it took many years. Uh, once I actually did that and I, I had some early success, I've spoken plenty on the, on the past about how my first few books got sold. Uh, the, the biggest obstacle I'm facing uh, now is getting into the habit of a steady, regular advertising schedule. I'm terrible about just uh, getting into advertising deeply for a few months, getting my sales up until I feel comfortable, and then sort of letting it peter off. Uh, so I'm, I don't have a solution for that one yet. If I did, I'd be letting you know. But as it is right now, I just sort of have to keep on... Uh, trying the new things and learning to get better at it until I'm motivated enough by my output of the, of the ads to continue running them every single day. Um, so missing the target were tropes and okay. So this is basically the biggest obstacle that I've had to deal with in my, my career. Um, like I was saying, missing the target where tropes and target demographics are concerned. I still haven't completely overcome that, but I've learned to work around it and focus on finding readers who like what I write. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing has been stuff outside of my control. So like my own health issues, surgeries, when I've had some of my major reconstructive knee surgeries and things like that, it just, it fries my brain. Um, for quite some time and then problems with babies and health and, and things like that. Um, I do my best to work around everything. Uh, and I look back to the days before I had kids and I'm like, Oh man, that, that was such, you know, those are such good times. But that, but back then I spent all my time learning how to publish and learning how to write and how to market and how to run a business. Um, because you know, I've never, never taken a creative writing class and I felt inadequate for quite some time. Um, and I'm really glad I got all of that out of the way, you know, the whole the publishing, learning how to market and run a business, but I do wish I'd been able to write more back then. All right. So probably my biggest obstacle is, um, myself and my own personality. You know, I'm, I've talked about how I'm an introvert. I'm not really that great at people. I, I find it very exhausting to uh, extrovert. So I don't go out and network or pursue relationships with like people who could possibly have a positive effect on my career. Um, I'm actually delighted that I've gotten as far as I have and can make a great living just being myself and not like going out and like trying to make buddies or schmooze anyone. And not to say that people who network are doing that, that they're just in it for themselves. But because I don't really do those things, you're never going to see me at a conference 
rarely talking to anybody unless I already know them because they were like a guest on our podcast or something like that. Um, so I do wonder sometimes, like if I was a little more proactive in reaching out to people, trying to meet people in the industry, maybe could I be bigger at this point and not in the COVID pounds kind of way bigger, but in the audience size and like having sold things, maybe movie, TV deals, uh, more foreign rights stuff, or have maybe done a traditional deal uh, for one series on the side to just kind of possibly increase the readership overall. So these are kind of questions I have. And, but at the same time, I, I haven't gone out to proactively seek those things. And I, I think there's just also a fear of rejection. <laughs> like, Hey, oh, we don't want your crummy indie self beat it. You know, I'm, I'm sure that they'd be more polite than that. But uh, so, you know, don't really do the networking thing basically. And I honestly haven't overcome this. I'm still wrestling a bit over whether I want to try to overcome that or, or just be content that, hey, I can make good money and I have great fans who have found me and really like my stuff just without a lot of that. So not really an overcoming story, uh, <laughs> success story, but there you go. Uh, Andrea, do you want to ask the next one? Yeah, I want to make a quick comment about that. I think that's something that, I mean, I, I see authors who are making 500 a month compared to those who are making 5,000 and 50,000 a month. And that urge and that desire to do better doesn't ever go away from what I've experienced. And so for our listeners, you've got to decide what, um, what you're going to tackle and what, what you're going to let like stop you and what you're not going to worry about because you can't push yourself so hard to get to that ultimate goal of success. Because when you get there, you're still going to want more probably. Possibly so. And I will say that there's nothing wrong with just making it about I'm earning, I'm earning great money. That's great. I, I think that with me, I'm like, I have so many readers that tell me like my series is their favorite and they've read it like four times. So, and that makes me wonder like, you know, when you see other people like that do that have gotten the deals that have gotten movie deals and stuff, it's like, I, I don't know. I feel like I'll probably get as much love from my fans as they do from theirs, but I'm not there. And I don't know. It's just, just something to, you know, not worry about, but you know, it's a question. Cause I think a lot of people like me hope these things will just fall in their laps. And that's pretty rare. I think you'll find that most people who get deals and that really get a lot of success have been out there um, meeting networking. And there's a lot of things that come your way because somebody knows you that met you and you're the first person on their mind. And, I, I don't like that that's true, but it is true in the world. So anyway, that's just, I don't want to sound like I'm not grateful for what I have. I am. Uh, I just, I really, I'm realizing that because of my personality, that is possibly an obstacle that I have to decide if that's something I want to overcome or not. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes total sense. Um, and I'm an extrovert, but I still have to, I wrestle with that too, because like getting out there is draining to me because I don't want to be around people I don't know. <laughs> So, um, okay. So Dean asks, how best do you handle social media? Um, all right. So my key pieces of advice are to pick one you like and spend most of your efforts on there. Uh, hopefully you like Facebook because Facebook is probably got the greatest utility for, for authors, both in terms of gathering an audience and also advertising. So even if you don't like Facebook, you should probably have a presence there. But uh, generally speaking, being fairly active in one or two places is better than having no activity everywhere, which is contrary to what I used to say. My old opinion was you should at least be accessible everywhere. And I technically sort of still am. Almost every social media, I at least have a handle. But all of my uh, my actual value has come out of whenever I actually focus on Facebook and 
Twitter is where I network, not so much where I advertise, but it's also where I'm most active. So, so yeah, I would say limit yourself to where you will least go insane and also throw Facebook on there if you can. <laughs> That's awesome. You're like, limit yourself to Facebook, but where you won't go insane. Um, I wish there was a way to like filter out anything related to masks and coronavirus because I, yeah, Facebook is not a fun place. Everybody's so argumentative right now. Um, but basically, yeah, what Joe said, um, I'd also add that social media really isn't that big of a deal when it comes to success. Uh, some of my most successful years um, have been ones where I had almost no online presence. And this goes against, again, what everybody says. You've got to be there. You've got to be accessible. You've got to have a place where you can cultivate, cultivate relationships. Sometimes doing that draws away from your success because it's distracting and it takes time. And if you're using all of your creative brain to write a really awesome post on Facebook that people are going to forget in a week, then it's, it's more of a detriment than it is a benefit. Um, and so like for those who tend to get sucked into reading about other people's lives, avoidance might be the best path, especially right now where emotions are so high and situations are so stressful. Um, I would just say, make sure you have an online presence where your readers are, then do your best not to spend a whole ton of time there unless you have a lot of time. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I, I just post on my Facebook author page for the most part and I check our, our group now that we have one. Um, but I, 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 so there's not much about masks and coronavirus on my, cause I'm like the one making the post and people have to re respond. Like you put a dragon floor down. This is cool. Dragon floor made out of tatami mats. Is that how you say it? It's awesome guys. Um, nobody's going to bring up masks on dragon floor posts. Although I did, um, put in a snippet. I have a villain who's masked, you know, and he has been masked and hooded to hide his identity for over a year. So pre COVID. And I, I meant, you know, I put a snippet in and somebody's like, Oh my gosh, I love him. He's so considerate. He wears a mask. And I was like, no, he's a villain. He's... So now my villain is considerate and uh, because I'm so mask. Anyway, what was my point? Facebook. Yeah, you don't have to like do all this scrolling through for the news media. You can have an author page and just do that. Um, I was more scattered in the beginning with social media, just a little bit here, a little bit there. And what I've learned, and we've talked about this on the show, this is probably not going to sell any books to new pe people who are new to you. It's super rare for something to like go viral. I never have stuff go viral except Dragon for the paper holder. And that did not sell me any books. I don't know why, guys. Um, but no, it's really more for about keeping in contact with existing fans. And I, I think there's a, a worthwhile element in doing that and kind of keeping them excited about new releases. Uh, that's why I shared the snippets of the stuff I'm working on. I think if, if you're stay in their mind, they're more likely to like see when your new book is coming and go out and buy it right away as opposed to like a year later, they're like, oh, I wonder if that one author I like has anything new out. So there, there's some worthwhile worth in, in doing that. Um, and I also, I saw in the beginning, I was, you know, a little bit here. I remember Google Plus. <laughs> I recently, I poked in there and it's like, oh, two years ago, they shut it down. Okay. Um, like I noticed. Um, but I was on there for a while. And then what I saw was that when I put like affiliate links on Facebook, on my author page, that that those can't, you know, and I put them on Twitter and the other places. And the, those basically accounted for almost all of my social media related sales. So what I did is I decided to double down on that. You know, in the beginning, I've maybe posted once or twice a week or totally forgot about the Facebook author page for a while. But now I'm on there pretty regularly. All I do is, like I said, dragon floor mats, you know, or a snippet from the new book. Or like I asked, hey, if I did a Kickstarter, you know, would you guys be interested? And, you know, oh, I'm going <laughs> to... 
That's awesome. Poor Lindsay. She's running off. Um, Joe, look, you can go ahead and ask the next question if you want. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the next question is from Takiri and it is, what are some metrics you use to gauge if a series is worth continuing? When is the most efficient cutoff point? Uh, and how do you make that decision? And uh, I think, and, and this is my opinion, but I think the best metric is sell-through. Sell-through from book one to book two will vary widely based on things like price and genre. But sell-through from book two to book three and so on should be very high. It should be 90% plus, uh, or at least in the range of 90%. And if you see a sharp drop-off in your sell-through at a certain book, it's probably a pretty good idea that you should start wrapping up that series because you're like... The reason for writing in a series is sell-through. The reason for writing in a series is that people will buy from book to book to book. And so the value of the series drops with the sell-through. So in my case, I was able to fight through it. Uh, for the Book of Deacon, there's a huge drop in my sell-through from book three to book four because book three was the end of a trilogy and book four was a continuation of a series that wasn't planned to have more than three books. But now that the series has been going on for long enough, uh, people have become more aware, and I make darn sure they know in the back matter that there's a book four or five and now a book six. Uh, I was able to get the sell-through back up from those. But generally speaking, if you see a sharp drop-off in your sell-through or you never see very high sell-through, rethink uh, the, the continuing of that series. That's a really good point. Um, the only time I've ever ended a series before I, before planned um, was my Ranch City Academy series. And it's a series I wrote with a lot of input from a local elementary school. Um, and every year I'd be like, hey, do you guys want to continue the series or do you guys want to write something different? And one year they're like, write something different, which kind of sucked because in this series, like the main characters figure out how to resurrect people and there's a good kid and a bad kid. The bad kid keeps resurrecting bad people. And in the last book of the series, he resurrected Adolf Hitler as a sixth grader. And my, my, the main character resurrected Winston Churchill. And I was planning on, and with the students that year, we were planning on writing a couple more books where, you know, I, we just had fun having these sixth grade versions of Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill go at it at each other. And, but the next year the kids were like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And since it's new kids, you know, so I ended up cutting um, that one off, um, tied it off and we focused on new adventures with different characters. Um, what I generally do is plan out a series and stick to the plan. Um, before I start writing the series though, I research the market and tropes and figure out how, how to um, best get what I want to write to fit. Um, and then I write the very best I can and find ways to make it sell later. And that's pretty much what I've always done. Um, I haven't had any of my main series be complete flops. Um, and like a lot of them in the middle of them, they don't sell very well. But then, like I've said in the past, I can get them to sell later. And that's my hope with this current series that hasn't been selling as well as my previous books. And Lindsay's back now. How are the dogs? <laughs> they are locked in the bedroom with some chicken strips at the moment. <laughs> um, so for this question, to some extent, I'm just... I'm now, I have a couple that I still have to go back and finish and I regret that I stopped them because I feel, you know, I have fans that still read them. So I now will not stop a series until I brought it to a completion point. And um, I will return. I have already finished a couple of the series I had left dangling. I still have a couple more to go, but it's so much easier just to keep going while the stories are fresh in your mind than to like go back and you have to reread everything. Um, so, you know, I would be hesitant to abandon things completely, you know, now knowing what I have, I'm having a hard time with that expression, knowing today what I did not know then. Um, 
I would at least figure out a way if you are thinking of abandoning it because the sell-through isn't good or just never took off to the kind of wrap things up and do a final book. Uh, at least that way there's closure and you're not like fans aren't going to hesitate to start a new series from you because you've, you know, shown them that you don't finish things. That's why now I'm like, I'm really like, I'm finishing things before I, I wander off. Um, and and in, the, in the case of those series, they were just that I had hoped they would do better. And also the case where... Um, sort of some of the fan feedback was negative, like, and not, and that can really get me down. Like real uh, fans that have enjoyed my other stuff are like, mm. uh, in one case, they were like 18 year old characters, uh, which was just, I have kind of learned that my readers are not super young. And even if they may want young, may like young adult stuff in general, they don't want it from me. <laughs> so those are some of the weakest series I've done is where the characters have been younger. So, and I, on the flip side, I've had like super love and appreciation for characters that are like in their forties, you know, and as I get older, probably there'll be more older characters and we'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, I just wrap it up if you can, rather than just leaving it dangling, especially, especially if it's not in a place where there was closure. And, and I would, also from you know just from my own experience you may be surprised like just because a series is not doing as well as you thought and i'm not saying this is the case for every you know everyone but i i actually went back recently and uh, as i mentioned i was thinking of the emperor's edge series for kickstarter and i looked at one of the later books republic which was sort of written after the series closed and i was thought oh that i don't think that one did super well it did okay the, the, a lot of the regular fans read it but you know i just looked at the lifetime earnings on amazon and it was like well over a hundred thousand dollars for that book over however many years six years or something so it's like well obviously not obviously but like it's still certainly worth my time to write that i mean that's great money for a uh, however many, I think that one took two or three months because it was probably three months because it was a long to around to write. But that is super good salary, even if I wasn't making anything from anything else. So realize that even if you didn't kill it with the launch or maybe the first year or something out, if you continue to, you know, try to get run ads, do a perma-free book one, uh, you may find that over time, the book actually does better than you realized it did. So, or the series. All right. You want to, want to do one more before we wrap up? Is it my turn? It's totally my turn. <laughs> uh, this is from Alicia for Andrea. She has three questions, so we're going to be doing three more questions. Um, I will go ahead and write, uh, answer, uh, ask all three. First, do you write under two names or more? If you could go back to the beginning, would you do things differently or the same way? And three, how do you judge if a series is doing well? Joe, you can answer first since yep. you're answering first. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'll answer even though the question is not for me, but I'll be quick about it. Uh, number one, I write under just one name as far as anybody knows. Uh, I have been joking that if I, well, when I eventually get one of my kids' books done, I might publish it under Uncle Jojo as my, as my author name, just because I think it'd be funny. Uh, but we'll see if I actually do that. Number two, if I could start over, I would do my series from beginning to end rather than alternating between them. Uh, and I would absolutely have had my newsletter sign up ready in my books from the start because I missed the first almost year of, of my book sales uh, with no n newsletter whatsoever. And then another couple of months of having a Google Docs like sign up form that was practically asking to be kicked out for spam purposes. And, uh, and for the third question, how do I judge a series is doing well? Just previous answer about sell through. If you do write under Uncle Jojo, you got to do it under Unky Jojo. <laughs> Unky Jojo, better idea. <laughs> so cute. Um, 
Okay. So I have three pen names, but I only currently manage one of them. Um, just because, you know, I had time once I, when I started them and I managed them and then I was like, you know, I'm just going to focus on the one right now. Um, I do things, I would do things pretty much the same since I learned writing in the publishing business going the way I did. Um, but I don't know, maybe I try writing a series for an older audience. I don't honestly see how that could have worked out though, because I didn't have any ideas for older books back then, older books as in older readers back then. And I was so passionate about my Colonia Chronicles. Um, um, as to knowing if a series is doing well, um, so this is where I usually ask, is it paying for its own advertising? And kind of what, like when Lindsay was saying earlier, when you advertise, is it like pulling teeth to get people to download or does it happen easily and naturally? Um, do readers respond well? Um, do you get positive feedback in emails even when those people aren't actually posting reviews? You know, I'm, I'm sure all of us know, like sometimes people will just tell the author privately that they love the book, but they're not willing to post a review. So use that as a gauge. Um, Let's see, do downloads happen easily when you put a big push and money toward a promotion? And another thing to think about, if you get, say, 20,000 downloads on a free book or on a paid book or whatever, and only have like two people leave a review, then in my experience, experience, you know, most people didn't finish the book. And then that leads to what Joe was saying earlier. Like if you have a very, very small percentage go from book to book, then that's saying that people aren't actually finishing the book that came ahead of it. Um, another way to judge success, how do beta readers respond? Uh, if most people don't finish reading before publication, before the book is even published, then it's a problem. Um, but also keep in mind though, that around 50%, it could, it's like 40 to 70% of people won't follow through on beta reading. But if no one is following through, then there's a problem with the story itself or a problem with the series itself. Um, and that's a good way to know if the series is doing well. I mean, like that's sometimes not helpful once it's been published, but it's helpful for later books in a series. Um, and then back in the day, I used to use beta readers to test trends. So I would have around 100 people read the first book in a new series. And what I would do is I would, I mean, I was asking for feedback, but most of the time I, um, how do I say it? I mean, I, I listened to their feedback, but that wasn't the main purpose for having so many beta readers. The main purpose was to see how many people finished and then to look for patterns in their feedback. Um, and that helped jumpstart my creative writing skills, but it also helped me recognize, you know, you know, and then a lot of times I'd be like, which part of the book did you have, did you struggle getting through? Which part of the book slowed you down? Which part did you put the book down and then not really care whether you picked it up again? And I got a lot of really honest feedback and I found that a lot of readers stop reading at different times, which means, I mean, that's natural. Not every reader is going to be, um, bored at the same time, but if you have everybody stopping around the same time, then that's saying that there's something wrong with that series or with that particular book. Um, I hope that answered the question. Um, Lindsay, it doesn't say here, Lindsay says things, but it does later. So I'm going to say, you should probably say things here too. <laughs> well, it was actually a question for you. So I, I don't have too much, but I, I would just reiterate, you know, kind of looking at sell through as far as whether you should continue on with the series. Is it actually making money? Uh, and sometimes just because it doesn't do as well as you thought it would, you know, you're like, I had this great idea. It's going to be awesome. doesn't mean it's not worth continuing. You know, I guess if, is it covering the editing 
the cost of creating the books. And that's hard. With your first series, it probably won't. Like it's, it takes time to build up a fan base. I will say if you have been working at things for a while and you're continuing to kind of push your first book one, if you do pre-orders, that's a pretty good way to gauge too, because you ideally you should be seeing more pre-orders for subsequent books in the series as you if you're continuing to get new readers into the series so if you see if you do always the same like three weeks it, it can be hard if you do like two months in time and six months the next time because that's naturally they're going to be different but if you see like a real drop off on how many people are pre-ordering it which would you know connote excitement. <laughs> That's something to look at too. Or just uh, be careful about sales number until stuff has been out for a while. Cause obviously the m- most recent book is going to sell not only to, uh, it's selling to all the people who bought the other ones over time, you know, so that tends to always be higher. Let's hope. <laughs> but yeah. And then the autumn too is just, are you still excited about it? You know, or maybe it's time to wrap it up and try something new. Uh, sometimes people get, you know, they're like, I write historical fantasy fiction and that's what I love. And they don't, you know, maybe there's something else they also love, but then not sure if they want to try moving to another genre. But a lot of times people will see a lot more success when they move to the genre, bringing in all the knowledge they learned from their first series that they never quite got to take off. Uh, just starting a new series or even in the same genre, you know, sometimes they find that, that um, that's, they just do much better jumping into like the other genre that they also enjoy. You're not necessarily selling out or anything like that. But, uh, you know, if you also like cozy cat mysteries, uh, why not give that a shot? And uh, you never know. I, I've seen that a lot where people struggled, even though they did all the right things to just gain traction with the thing that they were writing and they had much letters, better success in, in another genre or with it just with a new concept series. All right, we are going to wrap and uh, move the next questions to next week. I don't think we know what we're going to talk about next week, but we'll figure that out before next week. Uh, I think that is it. Do you guys have any final thoughts before we go? I'm all empty. Excellent. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six or in our Facebook group under Six Figure Authors on Facebook. Answer the beard question and you can get into the group. Don't answer it. Sorry. We we have standards. (laughs) You have to know about the beard. (laughs) It's it's Joe, guys. It's Joe. All right. My favorite was is when they say one of us or when they say somebody who's not even on the podcast. <laughs> if they say you or me, I'm like, well, that's okay. I just want them to like prove that they listened or at least went to the website, yeah. <laughs> like looked us up. Um, yeah, because there's lots of writers groups out there for just nothing. Uh, we want to keep ours kind of small and be able to reference things that we've talked about in the podcast and not have to answer a whole bunch of newbie questions because you guys are not newbies if you're listening to these shows. If you made it through this episode, you're not a newbie. So um, we really appreciate it. And we appreciate everyone who chimes in on the Facebook group and answers questions because honestly, people ask things. I'm like, I do not know the answer to that. I have not done that. Um, so we really appreciate um, all the people who are participating and I will stop talking now so we can all have a good night. Good night, everyone. Bye. (laughs) So long, everybody.